Hi, I'm Hedgeye's founder, Keith McCullough. Thanks for listening to this real conversation. If you like what you hear, you will love our investing research. We bring transparency, accountability, and actionable investing ideas to investors big and small. I'll put our investing process and team up against anyone in the world. Please visit Hedgeye.com to subscribe and learn a better way to invest. I'm Keith McCullough, and welcome to The Outlook, where my partner Josh Steiner and I are going to walk you through uh, a critical theme, suffice to say, which is inflation's calculus, and really trying to help you understand how we measure and mapped not only where we came from, we called the bottom uh, in inflation and things like commodities as an asset class in June of 2020, and also have recently called the top or the peak in peak cycle inflation. So there's a method to the madness. It's it's squarely in the mathematics of it all. Uh, Josh Steiner's allowed to smile when I say the, the secret to the universe. Steiner, we're going to teach people about that. It's calculus. You like calculus, right? Yeah? He looks, he looks like he's okay with that. Okay. Well, Steiner's not going to speak until I get through some process slides. So let's get you through uh, the Hedgeye methodology. So again, we start with the rates of change. We do this because, again, the rates of change of the economy are front-run by market signals. Don't forget, it's the signals to the quads. The quads, if you jump ahead to what... Um, uh, actually, let's, let's do slide, slide five first in terms of um, how we think of rates of change, because some of you may or may not know what that means. Uh, you should, obviously, uh, but not obviously, because what I've learned uh, in the Hedgeye vernacular is that not a lot of people, uh, unless I send them to the Khan Academy, have actually studied calculus. Um, so again, when you have the rate of change slowing, you're going this way, okay? So you're going like that. When you have the rate of change accelerating, you're coming off the bottom of the cycle like that. So this is uh, Q2 of 2020 for inflation. And this uh, right here, this negative one, is actually June of 2022. 2022. Are, are you able to see time and space backwards and still maintain your sobriety? Hey, it's only 11 o'clock. So again, here we are, and we're going to walk you through why we've already seen the peak of the mountain in terms of the rate of change of inflation and we'll show where, where it could slow to. So let's just jump ahead to, uh, guys, go to slide uh, 15 in the current macro deck. So again, the rates of change, uh, we have a, what we call a now cast to measure and map this. So again, take your sine curve. Remember the last slide? We have one of these, right? And we said right here, that's the peak of June. That's right there in Q2. So the quarterly setup, even though the peak of inflation was actually 9.2% year-over-year. The quarterly average was 8.63%. So, unlike all the bullshit that you've been taught on, on Wall Street about the levels and the valuation and the, uh, the simple moving monkey average of things, okay? Getting this right, again, if you bought commodities right here, Q2 of 2020, you bought the low, and here you are if you sold at the high. Now, magic trick. For you mathematicians out there, it's not really magic. What if you sold commodities in June of 2022? You sold them at the top. The CRB Commodities Index, which is 19 commodities in that index, is currently down 17 to 18% from the cycle peak. And all we've seen is lots of noise going from here to here on inflation. So again, some people think that that's positive for tech. They obviously just blew up for the upteenth time doing that. So the rate of change 
Now, we currently have it at 7.52%. That's our quarterly nowcast. I'm not going to give away the calculation. If somebody had that, that'd be very valuable because it's what's core to us. So we have a rate of change calculation measuring and mapping for both uh, growth, GDP row growth, and inflation. If you get those two things right, you get the quads right. If you get the quads right, you tend to get the company P&Ls or the pods right. Instead of quads, pods. Revenues, cash flows, if you have them. If you don't, stock sucks this year. In quad two, very good to own storytelling. You can even own legal frauds. I mean, obviously, we were long crypto last year and didn't quite even have to understand that until now. On the way down is where all the frauds are revealed, of course. So here we are, no matter where you go. Actually, the last number, which is really interesting, you know, Wall Street got all excited because the CPI was lower than expected. Well, it wasn't lower than our number. It was pretty much right on the screws. Our number prior to that 7.7% number was 7.62%, just to hold ourselves to account. Uh, post the number, uh, our numbers change. And as commodities trade, because those are clean-cut inputs to our real-time nowcast, uh, as oil, for example, has gone down uh, in recent weeks, the nowcast has gone to 7.52%, down from 7.7, 7.6. Okay, so that's the whole methodology. As real-time commodity prices change, as real-time data changes, we change. What do you do, sirs and madams? Before you could only say sirs. Now we, what if we only said madams? Doesn't matter. We're again, all we're doing here is math. Okay. So again, another point that is critical that I think a lot of you would, 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 would see here, because you can see um, Bloomberg consensus estimates, yay old wall. We're pretty much in line finally with the old wall here. Now that's not normal, because when we said inflation was going to break out, they said, no, 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 no. Right here, right, right at the 1.9. They said, that, 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 that's transitory. Remember that bullshit? It's bullshit, right? Unequivocal bullshit. Uh, inflation doubled and doubled. Double, double, trouble. Right? So now, so on the way up, we had it right. So our bars used to be higher than Wall Street. And then coming on the way down, our bars, or again, this is one of the first times where we're in line. Now, I do think that this is a message in the bond market today. I wrote an early look note on why there's a consolidation in both my currency and my bond yield signals. Okay? So I do think that that's because consensus has finally come to agree that inflation, A, has come down from the peak of the cycle, 9.2, to seven and a half. That's where, you know, if it is seven and a half, are you going to panic buy? Are you going to go buy some Carvana? Like, seriously, what are you doing? Okay. So again, the rates of change of growth and inflation slowing at the same time. And by the way, right here, you'll note by the, the first quarter, we're above consensus again. And this has been our point the whole time. Consensus really needs the Fed to pivot because consensus continues to be positioned uh, the same way. A lot of people like to buy profitless growth. They like to buy crypto. They like to buy all this stuff. Okay, uh, We're in a regime shift on interest rates because we're in a regime shift on inflation. Again, as you can see, we don't have inflation over here by the middle of next year going much below over a double of the Fed's target. The Fed's target's two. Okay, so again, while people may hope, want, and pray for a two and the Fed to pivot and cut interest rates, uh, the market's not pricing that in at all. Uh, look at short-term rates. I mean, that's what the Fed is, or where the Fed's priced, and the short end of the curve remains pinned up at its uh, level that it's at because the Fed's going to raise rates through February and then pause and not cut. And if that changes, we'll let subscribers know. Okay, so this is um, this is where we're at. So again, I, I, and a final point here, uh, if we go to, uh, if you guys can bring it back to the quads, I believe on on slide on slide uh, six, <clears throat> this is a very bad situation. So again, this is where quad four and Q four is. 
That's the deepest of the quads, the quad fours that we have. We have, as you can see, we have a quad four here, and we have quad four here. These are a little narrower than this one. But again, the whole point about quad four is that the rate of change of growth, revenue growth, GDP growth, we have GDP going from, it's gone from, let's, let's go back. Let's show the growth part on slide 13. Okay, on slide 13. On slide 13, you can see that GDP has gone from 12.5% to 6%. Let's round these off for people that are really good at math. All right? To 2%. These are basically 2. To, oh, geez, we're going to 0. So when you go from 12 to 6 to 2 to 0, is that good or bad for your revenues if you are in any way, shape, or form tied to GDP? Again, we're talking about companies that tell the truth. Okay? So quad four is when the rate of change of GDP is slowing, in this case, towards a recession, and we're already in one. Uh, and two, inflation slows. And then three, profits slow. Profits slow because growth and inflation are slowing. Now, if only these bozos on CNBC, Bloomberg, and elsewhere that are still struggling with their FTX ad revenue problem uh, would, would just say it that way, then they would have a less tough time begging for a pivot. In the last two recessions, the Fed pivoted all right. They cut interest rates and printed money as far as the eye can see. Ben Bernanke, 2008. Greenspan, less so than Bernanke. That'd be tough to do in 2001. Was that a catalyst to buy tech? No. Was it a catalyst eventually for bond yields falling on the long end of the curve? Absolutely. And what do you do with that? You buy quad four. Quad four, slide eight, guys. Uh, bring that up. And what I love about this market right now, I don't fall in love with markets. I'm just feeling like a lovey-dovey guy today. Yeah? I'm giving you this for free. Think about that. In quad four, and this isn't deflation. We basically have disinflating peak inflation. In this quad four, I can current positions aren't this. That will maybe be a position. We're long of gold. We're still long of dollars. We have been all year long. We're long of consumer staples in healthcare. Check, check, check. You notice that I'm not long of everything that says I could be long. Oh, I have the mental flexibility to do that. Yes. After 23 years. A lot of gray hair. Chubby Irish guy can do that. Do that for the fam, right? We go with the signal front runs a quad. So these are the things that we could buy, but we only buy the things that the market is signaling you should buy. Okay? So that's, um, I think, Steiner, a good spot where we can actually, before I get to Steiner, let's just go to how we, so we take these things and we boil them down to themes. So if you go to slide, I believe it's slide 25 or 26, you can see that the top three themes currently are at Hedgeye is, is that we're in a global quad four recession. You know, Chinese numbers have never been this bad uh, since entering the WTO. Uh, profit recession, which is, again, profit recession equals quad four. And that's the real problem. When you wake up to the Q4 numbers, you know, Best Buy is not going to tell you the bullshit they told you today. They're kind of hoping and praying that, this, that the holiday selling ends up being what's you know, what, what, they, what they told you today. What do you think these guys are going to say? Ah, holiday's going to be terrible. <laughs> no, no, no. Right. So we think that this really starts when companies start reporting their numbers, pre-announcing their numbers in January, and then properly reporting them in the, in the fourth quarter numbers in the first quarter. And what we're going to get to is this, which we largely think is misunderstood. It was on the way up, so why wouldn't it be on the way down? If everybody calculated, measured, and mapped using a stochastic and Bayesian inference process, if they had our model, they would have got this right. Okay. So again, we're not saying we're all that. We're just better than a very low bar, which is Wall Street uh, and all their media. That's easy. The harder thing to beat is the market. So 
Um, we'll get into that. We're going to get into the particulars of inflation's calculus. Nobody, I don't, I don't see anybody that, that got this right on the way up and on the way down, uh, both growth and inflation. But uh, the guy, the mad, the mad man behind the whole thing, behind the curtains, you know, look at how evil he looks. <laughs> he's, not, uh, he's not an evildoer. Uh, we have a big team, uh, and Steiner and I are quite fortunate to work alongside our teammates, Drago, Richie, the Rooster, who's his new nickname. Many of you have seen our teammates, Dr. Drake, Christian Drake, fantastic, Jonesy Buds. There's a, it's a great team that we've, we've built here, and now we even have Tex Burnett on the team, who's, uh, that's his new nickname. Uh, his real name's Taylor Burnett. But uh, thank you, Josh Steiner, for, um, you know, making some time to... And in, in all of your, uh, yeah, I don't think people think you're a madman. I think that they're going to be impressed. So take it away. All right. Well, thank you. And uh, yeah, I've picked out a uh, sort of a handful of slides. So our macro themes deck this quarter was like 160 or so slides. And <laughs> I picked out a handful from the, uh, the the third theme here on inflation's uh, peak inflation's uh, calculus. You picked, um, you curated this presentation by selecting 13 of 163 slides. Does that yeah, mean that uh, does that mean that the other the other slides don't matter? No, no. I just uh, we we wanted to kind of convey the message, but um, we also didn't really want to sort of um, you know spend an hour doing this. So. Um, these, these are the ones that I think are effective at conveying uh, the process, the message, and uh, hopefully leaving people with a little bit of a better understanding for sort of how we think about things and uh, why we do what we do. So uh, I guess I'd start out with the uh, slide that, that you uh, left off on, uh, Keith, which in the slides that I sent over is slide four. And just to contextualize a little bit, and I think you did a good job uh, contextualizing it in a slightly different way, just to sort of bring everybody you know, up to speed. So pre-pandemic, we were basically in a high one, low 2% inflation environment. You can see that on the left. Obviously, the very beginning of the pandemic was a very disinflationary environment. So inflation fell from 2% down to sub 1%. Uh, that lasted for about a year. And um, then, of course, in 2Q21 is when inflation really took off. It basically more than doubled from about 2% up to almost 5 This is also the time when uh, Powell began sort of pushing this transitory uh, message that, you know, the inflation that was being seen was uh, transitory and really not something to be overly concerned about. Well, we can see, obviously, that uh, it wasn't transitory and uh, it actually continued to accelerate. So it went from 5% up to ultimately its quarterly peak of over 8.5% in the second quarter of this year. And since then, it's been coming down. And I guess the point about it coming down is really twofold. One is uh, that it is coming down. Uh, the second is uh, that the rate at which it's falling is very important. But also, uh, from <clears throat> just a level standpoint, it's obviously... Uh, multiples of the Fed's target 2% inflation rate. So, you know, even as you look out into the second quarter of next year, or even the third quarter of next year, um, we have inflation obviously still running on a headline basis uh, well north of that 2% rate. So next thing to think about is, is just sort of the cadence of um, the monthly numbers. So on slide, next slide here, slide five, you know, just looking at the, the two-year comparative base effects here by month, um, what you see is there's sort of periods where uh, we've got it highlighted in red and, and periods where we've got it highlighted in green. And 
all that's really telling you is uh, the steepness or lack thereof of what those two-year comparative base effects look like. So in other words, when the steepness is not all that remarkable, uh, that's highlighted in red because all else equal, uh, that's going to you know, marginally um, result in a, uh, you know, a less dovish print, i.e. a hawkish print. So that's in red. Conversely, the green basically shows when the base effects are steeper and therefore, again, all else equal, you would be more likely to see uh, a more conspicuous slowing uh, in the sequential of the rate of change year over year. <clears throat> now, if we look at the sort of box there on the right, which is really that February to July or rather June of 2023 timeframe, uh, that's where it starts to get interesting. Now, remember that February is reported in March. So really what we're talking about is data that will be coming into the market uh, from roughly mid-March uh, uh, all the way through the summer. And that's the period at which inflation is going to start slowing down at a very aggressive rate. So, you know, you're going to have, on average, something on the order of half a point, half a percentage point uh, of slowing in the rate of inflation each month over that time frame. So that'll be an interesting period of time. Nevertheless, you're still going to be at a level uh, that's going to be obviously well ahead of what the Fed is uh, is trying to get to, which is 2%. Can I uh, so, color on that uh, chart there, Steiner? Because I think that this is, um, yeah. you know, I, I, I think it's easily understood if you're mathematically oriented and you start with the base effects. Um, but maybe not so if that's not what you do. We get it. You know, some of you, uh, many of you, it's not a full-time job. Uh, for those of you that do it as a full-time job, many of you, have, uh, thank God, been forced to change what you do because the old wall ways aren't working. Okay, so when we think about this here, just think about this in terms of what's implied in our nowcast to your forward-looking strategy relative to the narratives, the permeable narratives that are out there. So again, the December number and the January number, the comps get more difficult again. Okay, December gets reported in January and January gets reported in February. So into what is currently priced in as the last rate hike, that you're going to squarely have two hawkish rate of change numbers where you know the inflation numbers could go up again. Depends on where oil's going, depends on where all the hot uh, components of the model, which Steiner's going to walk through some of them here. Uh, again, you could quite easily be going into the final rate hike where you're not yet falling, where you will start to fall, again, by the time you get to May and June. But between May and June, there's like another career in here, okay? So for everyone who's not really, A, imagine, just imagine the alternative, Josh. Um, you know it's serious when I'm calling you Josh. Imagine the alternative. You don't even have a model, and never mind having an accurate one. You don't have a model. You just have your thoughts. Well, what I'd like to see is a Fed pivot. I'd like to see lower inflation numbers. Okay. You don't have a model and you don't know, you wouldn't know what to do with it if you had one. Okay. So <laughs> I think it's a real interesting setup because we're coming out of a terrible year for, for investors and going into a new year where we're arguing that there's a regime shift, i.e. we're not going to get a cut anyway, but right into the first two months of the year, you could have Powell j just about as hawkish as he's been, by the way, which not a lot of people uh, listen, but he is, has been indeed hawkish, and it would have been a pretty good strategy to actually listen to the guy. So, uh, in, in a little bit of uh, in a little bit here, we'll we'll break down some of the important or most important uh, pieces of inflation. But before we do that, I wanted to spend just a few slides uh, providing a little bit of historical context because you know the the simple reality is that it's it's been about forty years. Uh, since we've had an inflation shock um, on the order of magnitude of 
you know, what we're seeing today. And, and as such, it's pretty easy uh, not to be aware of, you know, what these historical environments have looked like, <clears throat> how long they've lasted, uh, what the sort of run up and drawdown looked like and so forth. So just a few slides to kind of run through that for color and context. So this slide six is contextualizing CPI on the way up. So um, what we've got on the left there is a little table uh, that shows the periods uh, during which you had an increase in inflation. Um, the duration is how many months uh, that run-up took from trough to peak reading. Uh, we show what the trough readings were, what the peak readings were, and the percentage change. And then also on the far right there, uh, was there a recession that followed uh, that inflationary shock period? And on the right, what you can see is just the chart showing the duration. So in other words, how long did it take for inflation to go from its trough to its peak in these historical episodes. And interestingly, the average has been two years, 24 months, the median 25, uh, without a huge uh, standard deviation there, as you can see. And the current uh, cycle took 26 months. So very close to being right in line uh, with that historical framework. So that was the way up. What about the way down? Uh, the next slide, slide seven, uh, is really the same thing, but instead of looking at the run-up in inflation, now we're looking at the run-down in inflation. So we're now measuring the uh, peak to trough uh, move, both in terms of duration and magnitude. And same exercise, um, what you find is that the average amount of time it took to get from peak back down to trough was very similar to what it took to go from trough to peak, 25 months on average. Now, the, devi or the standard deviation here is a little bit wider. You can see the, the Volcker era there uh, took 39 months, uh, so obviously a um, very long protracted period uh, to get inflation back down. Uh, currently, we're five months uh, off of the top here, right? So the peak was in June. Uh, we're now in, in November, so we're only five months into, you know, historically what's taken on average 25 months to get from, uh, from peak back down to trough. Um, if we go to the next slide, slide eight, and we sort of think about uh, the Fed's reaction uh, to these inflationary shock periods uh, historically. Um, there's a few different ways of, of looking at it, um, again, through sort of a similar lens. One is how long, what was the duration of time that the Fed actually went and tightened uh, in response uh, to that shock? Uh, how long did it take them to ultimately get to the policy rate they were targeting? Um, and then also, uh, what was the ultimate uh, change in rates uh, to get there. And so on the left, we can see that historically, the Fed's tightened on average for 28 months. That's how long it's taken uh, to get inflation back under control. Um, currently, we're nine months in. So the first uh, Fed hike was back in February of 2022. Here we are in November of 2022. And on the right, you can see by how much rates have tightened. So 3.9%. So the Fed has moved fairly quickly since they got started. Um, the average historically has been six and a half. Obviously, there is a lot of dispersion there. I think to sort of dial that in a little bit more uh, in, on the next slide, uh, here's a little bit better context. So on the left, what we're looking at is uh, the magnitude of the Fed's hiking cycle relative to the uh, change in CPI. So in other words, if the Fed went from 4% to 10% on rates, that'd be a plus six. And if inflation went from a 4% to a 9%, that'd be a plus five. So in this chart, that would be shown as a plus one. In other words, you tighten by six, inflation went up by five, 
So that would leave you with a plus one uh, percent percentage point spread. And so you can see these previous cycles. Uh, the tightening has generally exceeded uh, the delta change in CPI uh, on average by 63 basis points or 0.6%. Um, the sort of furthest off from that historically was this uh, 1950s period uh, where it lagged by about a point and a half. Um, currently, we're 4.9% uh, behind. So in other words, uh, the difference between the amount of increase in inflation and the amount of increase in Fed funds uh, is running at 4.9% uh, still. So that's obviously very different uh, than what this historical averages looked like. Uh, and then similarly on the right, the other way of looking at it would really be sort of like a peak versus peak comparison. So if you looked at the peak in Fed funds relative to the peak in CPI, so peak less peak, uh, historically, Fed funds has actually risen to that peak level of CPI on average, in fact, exceeded it uh, by 1.2 percentage points, again, on average, over these previous periods. Currently, it's five points below. So we peaked at around 9% inflation. Currently, we're at 4% or thereabouts on Fed funds. So that's a negative five. Um, one piece of color I would add to this is that the tools of policy have evolved uh, over time, and particularly over the last couple of decades. So uh, some recent work out of the San Francisco Fed has found that uh, when you incorporate the effects of uh, quantitative policy dynamics, so quantitative easing, quantitative tightening, currently we have quantitative tightening, um, and also you incorporate the effects of forward policy guidance. Uh, so you put all that together with the official policy rate um, the effect actually has been greater than what we've seen. In other words, uh, whereas we're basically at a uh, policy rate of around 4%, the effective policy rate when you factor in QT and also forward guidance is about two to two and a half full points higher than that. So more like six, six and a quarter, six and a half is the effective policy rate versus the official policy rate of around four. Even with that, these 5% shortages, if you will, you know, you, you give them the benefit of the doubt on those, uh, the QT and the forward guidance. And that takes you from negative five up to, say, negative three, negative two and a half. And there's another point that's embedded in terms of uh, forward uh, tightening expectation. Uh, so that would maybe get you to, you know, within about a point and a half or thereabouts. That means the terminal rate very likely could still be a full point and a half uh, too low, uh, what's being modeled right now. So anyway, just a little bit of historical uh, color and context there um, for just the sort of degree of embeddedness um, of inflation, even though we see it coming down and doing so at an accelerating rate, it's going to take quite a while and it's it's going to be around for longer uh, than people expect. Let's um, let me so, uh, let me doodle on that on a couple charts there just to to say that one more time and maybe in a different way, but saying the same thing. Okay, that's the thing about numbers instead of narratives. The numbers don't change. Narratives do. Okay, so and, and as I said, Steiner's not a madman. He's professorial, I think. I mean, he's like, this is this is this is good. You're getting an education, and I'm sure everybody appreciates it, Josh. Um, but if you look at this point in in time, right here, this is you know, Volcker. People don't listen to what he says. But think about it. He's a pissed off Republican. He didn't. He's pissed off because Democrats like. Yellen and Lyle Brainerd tried to get him out of there. You know, she, Lyle Brainerd wanted that seat. Didn't work out for them. Um, so he came into the, he's like, look, I'm going to change things. I'm going to, I'm going to change. I'm going to be more like Volcker. 
And if you actually ask him, that's what he'll say. And he's steadfast in that, in that regard. He'll also say, Volcker was uh, successful because in the 1970s, we had a Fed that wasn't successful. So he considers actually this period, Josh, to be unsuccessful. This was the first time where he went back into recession, when he only did that. The one before that is Volcker. That's being successful in fighting inflation. Now go back to the, uh, I think it's slide 130 in our deck, but um, the contextualization or the magnitude. Um, and you think about this one more time in terms of the political uh, days and, and, and the difference between Volcker and the 1970s. Again, Powell doesn't want to have 1970s. Why? Because we had three recessions in one decade and perpetual stagflation. So the only way to have noflation is to keep fighting it. Okay, so again, Steiner talked about the average of things. It's, it's, it's actually really important to go and understand the particular thing. So the particular thing of the 1970s that gives you the average of you know, 24 months is that 20 anything months wasn't enough. Okay, you can see it, you know, there are two different cracks at the can here. We're 28 months, 24 months. This is 1970s, this is 1970s. Volcker is here, 39 months. Again, taking inflation down by 12%. Powell thinks that taking inflation down by 3%, 28 months, was a fail. Again, it's not what people talk about on Bozo TV. Bozo's a great clown, one of the most famous clowns ever. Don't be a clown. Don't be somebody who is, again, starting with a premise or a narrative that, that is where you want to get things to as opposed to where the numbers are and where history is. History and inflation fighting sides on the side of one man, Paul Volcker, does not side on the side of being a Patsy or a Ponzi in the 1970s. By the way, the Ponzi's that we have now are far greater. Um, I digress. Why don't you uh, keep going here, Senator? All right. So um, the last uh, thing I wanted to run through is just a few examples, uh, a few sort of breakdowns of some of the important components uh, of inflation that have you know, played a big role here uh, in this inflationary shock period and just helping um, investors to understand sort of what's going on, uh, why, and maybe most importantly, uh, what the outlook is um, from both the timing and a, and a magnitude standpoint. So uh, slide 10 is... Uh, well, it's a little bit of a confusing slide, but I'll, I'll, I'll sort of run through it. So uh, the biggest component of inflation is shelter. So if you look at shelter by its weight in the total uh, price basket, it's uh, just shy of a third of the total cost of uh, living. And most of that uh, is made up of uh, what's called owner's equivalent rent. So uh, owner's equivalent rent is basically an attempt um, to figure out what the cost of uh, owning a home is um, based on uh, using actually our rental uh, survey panel um, set of data so that it rolls every six months. And the sort of problem with that is that it creates a very lagged flow through into inflation. Now, uh, some people would say that it's not lagged uh, because in fact, if for instance, you are renting, uh, then you know, your rent resets whenever the duration or term of your lease is up. So if you, you know, signed a two-year lease uh, nine months ago, you're not going to have to uh, deal with that uh, for over another year. 
So for you, until that reset hits, you're not experiencing any increase in price. So that would be one characterization. I don't think that's unfair. Um, however, uh, what we're interested in is uh, what can be used from a lead lag standpoint uh, in order to actually frame an expectation, a probabilistic expectation, uh, to what is going to happen to shelter uh, by way of OER and, and the rental component. And to do that, uh, what we looked at was the relationship between uh, the home price series, which is a um, an RSI or repeat sales index for home prices. It's the Case-Shiller, uh, S&P Case-Shiller series. And um, what this chart or slide is showing is the nature of that relationship. Uh, so, for instance, um, we're looking on the left at what happens to the R squared uh, or the strength of the, uh, the fit of the relationship, arguably the predictive power or explanatory power, uh, depending on how much you lead or lag uh, one versus the other. So you see at the top there that 0.0899, uh, that basically is if you have, if they're coincident, you have no uh, leader lag. And then what we do is we progressively lag um, owner's equivalent rent relative to Case-Shiller by one month, two months, three months, and so on and so forth, all the way through 21 months. And you can see the strength of the R-square change on the right there. So it consistently rises. Um, and you can see that depicted graphically on the bottom right there. So on the x-axis, the horizontal axis, uh, we've got the sort of number zero up through 30. That's the number of months uh, that OER is lagging uh, the rate of change in Case-Shiller. And then on the y-axis, the vertical axis, you can see the strength of the R, the correlation. And you can see how it rises steadily from zero up to where that gray uh, box or rectangle is. And that's about where the strength of the relationship peaks out. So it's somewhere in that 15 to 16 to 17 to 18 month time frame. That's where it seems to get the strongest. And then it starts to trail off after that. So that gives you a pretty good idea um, that the one leads the other uh, by about 15 to 18 months on average. And you can see that in the, the chart on the top right. Uh, that is reflecting um, the data set from 1991 to 2022 using monthly values for both um, owner's equivalent rent, rate of change year over year, as well as Case-Shiller National rate of change year over year with an 18 month lag. And you can see what the strength of that relationship looks like. To make it maybe a little bit easier, on the next slide, slide 11, um, you can see the two series overlaid against one, one another. And what we're primarily interested in is these sort of periods of significant uh, drawdown and reacceleration. So to sort of look or direct your, your eyes to the center of the chart, uh, you can see, of course, the massive drawdown in uh, the GFC period in terms of rate of change of home prices there. So it peaked in October of 2005 or thereabouts, up at around 14.5%. Uh, it then troughed uh, back in uh, February of 2009 uh, at negative 13%. And now look at the blue line that uh, represents the owner's equivalent rent series. So it did the same thing, but on a significant lag. And that's really the point. And if you go all the way to the right, you can see the same effect um, on display on the way up. You can see home prices rising significantly uh, and then there's equivalent rent doing the same thing, but again, on a significant and comparable lag. Uh, so if we sort of take all that and we basically uh, put it into a, a relationship on a forward basis on slide 12, um, this is what it looks like. Essentially, um, somewhere between the next sort of one to two, at most three to four 
uh, months are going to see an ongoing acceleration um, in the rate of change in earnings equivalent rent. That'll peak out uh, once we sort of catch up to that mid-2021 uh, environment for home prices. Uh, and then from there, it's most likely going to go sideways rather than come back down uh, and go sideways for a good nine or 10 months. And, and that's really because that's what Kay Schiller did. Uh, then after that, finally, you'll enter a period of uh, very rapid disinflation on shelter. But that's not going to start until late 2023 and possibly not even until the beginning of 2024. And again, this is a third of the overall price basket. So this is going to represent a real thorn uh, in the Fed side because even though there is a lot of disinflation happening uh, elsewhere in the price basket, shelter is going to, and it's the largest piece, continue to be moving higher and then stay sticky high for a long time. So we'll move to um, the next piece here. I wanted to spend a moment because it's been uh, a pretty sort of hot topic issue in, in inflation, and that's used cars. Normally, we don't think of used cars as being all that interesting, uh, but for the last few years, uh, they've been extraordinarily interesting. So sort of a similar exercise. Basically, we're interested in the relationship, in this case, between what's called the Mannheim Index. So Mannheim uh, is uh, a reference to Mannheim, Pennsylvania. Uh, Mannheim, Pennsylvania has a company called Mannheim, uh, which is the largest um, used car um, wholesaler, uh, basically auction house in the country. And they put together a series uh, and have for about 30 years that represents uh, the index level of used car values, used vehicle values. And if we use that uh, index and we compare it to CPI's uh, used car uh, value rate of change, what we find, again, using a similar approach, is that Mannheim leads um, CPI used cars by about two months. And you can see that both in the table on the left and the chart on the bottom right. See that peaks out at around uh, one to two months. Um, and you can see the nature of that relationship on a two-month lag uh, in the top right there. So pretty strong, uh, pretty strong fit there. Um, you know, the bottom line here is on slide 14, uh, we've seen just an extraordinary uh, backdrop for used vehicle values. So you can see from 1994 to the start of the pandemic, um, the biggest drawdown we had was during the GFC in 2008. And in comparison to what the pandemic produced, uh, that was like, you know, barely a speed bump. Um, so anyway, unprecedented uh, level of increase in used vehicle values. Uh, but now they are falling at their fastest rate ever um, as of where we are today. And that's been going on since January. So since the peak in January of this year, used vehicle prices or values are down about 15%. Uh, and that is what's now flowing into the CPI. And if we go to the next slide, you can sort of see the effect this is having on the headline number. So I've got um, I've got a few things highlighted here in this table. Uh, what I would direct attention to are the two red circles. So what we're what we've got circled there is the used cars and truck component. And back at the beginning of this year, when we were at peak in rate of change terms, uh, used cars alone, which it's kind of crazy, only represent about three percent of the total weight of the the index or the price basket they were contributing 1.69 and 1.71 percentage points to the 7.5 and 7.9% headline CPI back in January, February of this year. If we fast forward to the right there, remove our eyes over to the right, 
now, as of October, that has gone from 1.7 point contribution to just eight basis point contribution. So in other words, uh, you've taken almost 160 or so basis points, 1.6 percentage points out of CPI uh, just from used car prices. So give you a little bit of an idea of how impactful a small piece uh, of the overall basket can be when it's moving like used vehicles have been, as we showed on slide 14. The final piece here that I would run through just from a componentry standpoint uh, is energy. And I think a lot of times, uh, not wrongly so, when people think of inflation, they think of gas prices. Um, obviously, uh, a very important and impactful thing, and frankly, something that changes very much in real time. And what's interesting about energy is on slide 16, um, if you run the same scenario, the same analysis uh, about the relationship between um, the energy component of uh, CPI and uh, what the price of uh, uh, WTI or, or West uh, Texas Intermediate uh, crude oil prices are doing, you find that WTI prices and rate of change terms year over year lead the energy uh, piece of CPI by one month. And you can see that on the right there. The table gets strongest at one month forward and then trails off uh, after that. Knowing that on slide 17, and by the way, there's three major sort of input components to energy. Uh, one is WTI, uh, one is natural gas, and the other is diesel prices. And when you compare all of them against the energy component of CPI, uh, you find they all do the same thing. They all lead by one month in year-over-year -year rate of change terms. And that's what this chart shows. It shows the year-over-year -year percentage rate of change uh, for each of these series, crude oil, nat gas, and diesel. And essentially what we're interested in is whether it is uh, slowing down or speeding up sequentially in year-over-year -year rate of change terms. And that gray column there represents uh, what the prices did year-over-year -year in October, October being the indicator for November from a headline CPI standpoint. And so you can sort of see that diesel and crude oil were largely sideways, uh, but nat gas obviously came down quite a bit. Uh, and then if we roll that or were to roll that forward, now to be fair, November is not yet over. Uh, so those numbers there are basically preliminary numbers on the basis of the amount of November that we have. Um, but if you were to roll that to the side, what you would find is basically that uh, they're largely sideways uh, to even up a little bit. So that'll be, of course, uh, your indicator um, for as we go into the uh, December print. Um, so anyway, wanted to give a little bit of uh, color there on how you know different things affect CPI. Uh, what the historical framework and context of CPI is, and um, how we think about CPI. And uh, yeah, I'll hand it back to you, Keith. Professorial, indeed. I have two more slides, bonus slides, I'm going to give you to, again, put this into the positioning, uh, not only of your asset allocation, but thinking about a regime shift in the Fed policy rate. So what Steiner said, quite clearly, that there's a very good argument to make that the policy rate should be 1%, 1.5%, maybe even 2% higher to achieve what would actually be the target of inflation that the Fed has stated. And uh, as I said at the outset, 
we can barely, by the middle of next year, get to more than double the prior high in inflation, the prior cycle high being. Um, so let's just look at that as opposed to the bullshit you watch on TV every day, uh, which is which is CNBC hoping and praying for a pivot. Now, I, I do recommend prayer. Uh, that is a, that is one recommendation I have if, if you have no process. Um, but why don't we just look at the Fed Fund <coughs> futures market on slide 47? Okay? <coughs> so we can see that. This is... Um, it's an amazing thing to watch. And, and just to walk you through, this is a little wonky for people, but um, um, this is when, remember when the stock market originally crashed to the June lows? Wall Street's initial reaction on Fed Fund Futures, the gray line, was, okay, market crash, let's take down rate hike expectations. Let's do what we do. Every single time, all the money printing, all the fraud comes home to roost. It's all tied together, don't forget. Oh, let's just predict and try to self-enforce our will, CNBC, Bloomberg, the whole thing, Goldman Sachs, that the Fed's got to cut rates. they got to stop with this. Well, that they tried that, and it didn't work. Then Powell stood up, and he said, no, 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 no. I'm going to take interest rates higher. So the market's expected path, and don't forget that this, now let's just zoom in, has been actually higher for longer. To a policy rate that Steiner just said, given our inflation calculus, it's not enough. It's still not enough to get to where he wants to get. Now, he's either completely full of shit, which there is a chance. So you're saying there's a chance, or there's not. Don't forget that DeSantis could easily run against both Pump, the Pump, President Pump, former President Pump, you got it, I'm doing a pump, I'm just repeating the same thing, and Biden by saying, look, we're the sound money guys. We're done with the frauds. We're done with the money printing. We actually like the idea of a savings rate that is tangible, like a tangible savings rate, where people, you know, good, hardworking Americans have a savings account and teach their kids, again, the value of a dollar. I'm not running for office. I'm not a Republican or a Democrat. Any Democrat, by the way, could run on the same thing. I'm just saying there's a political opportunity here because Powell's a Republican and to keep him in a seat and do this. Okay, next slide uh, on slide uh, 48. Just to show you Fed pivots. Again, there, there's a, been a pivot, all right. There's been a pivot higher in Powell's hawkishness. So again, when you think about where the curve, and this is again, the implied policy rate. So again, all the way out until let's call it September, August, September of next year, there really is nothing Obviously, there's no rate cut priced in. You start to get a chance of a rate cut in the back in the, in the fourth quarter. But really? What happens if, if, if we just lock it in? What happens if the policy rate not only just locks in up here, but then starts to go up again? Very few people are positioned for that, other than who? The bond market. The yield curve. Part of the bond market. The yield curve is currently minus 71 on 10-year, minus 2-year yields. That is the most inverted curve in the history of the curve, which is a long time. Okay, So the bond market's had it right. All of crypto's got it right. You notice this thing is going, may go away, uh, or at least try to. NASDAQ's got it right. So why is it that every day, every waking hour of our day, old wall media, MSM, is constantly fighting against something that A, isn't happening, and B, might happen pivot-wise, all right, but the other way. 
I'm just asking for some old wall friends. Now, the reason why, obviously, people wouldn't want that, and this isn't amazing and interesting, and I want to end on this, that the very people, the very fraudsters that you can now see all over the place from rearvision.com to CNBC, the fully loaded ad cycle that was behind it from, from FTX and on back again. Isn't it amazing that the crypto was a solution to save us from money printing? Really? They need to have it back to get their crypto storytelling scams back. A lot of different, different scams and schemes do. They need easy money. So I really do think that this is a moment in time where, one, you got an education on how the numbers really work. Two, why the bond market's been pricing it this way and the stock market's been, again, really kind of foolishly trying to, to price it a different way. That only happens in FOMO, U.S. equity futures, new retail investors post the pandemic, panic and performance-stricken hedge funds that are constantly forced to cover, uh, whatever, whatever, whatever. It's a bigger question. It's a bigger question. It's a good question for the country. It's a good question for you because you probably haven't been asked that question. You know, what is next year really going to look like? Is Powell the real deal on this or not? There is certainly a history uh, for performing that way in terms of hawkishness for an extended period of time. And if the numbers change, we will. So all that said, um, don't forget that anything I said today or anything that Josh Steiner said can and will change as the numbers change and or market signals. Don't forget that that's our only objective is to save and make money selfishly. You know, we're not trying to, to, to scam you or lie to you or cheat you like, like most of the, the aforementioned. But again, if it changes, we'll change. That's the whole point of the process. It is, again, very, very much a deliberate study of the incoming data, and it's all about the numbers. We don't care whatsoever, really, about the narrative. So thank you for, uh, thank you for joining us. Thanks to Josh for uh, giving the tutorial on this, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Real Conversations, brought to you by Hedgeye. Don't forget to check out Hedgeye.com to get more actionable investing insights from our team of more than 40 research analysts. And check us out on Twitter at our handle, at Hedgeye. This presentation is informational only. None of the information contained herein constitutes an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security or investment vehicle, nor does it constitute investment recommendation or legal tax accounting or investment advice by Hedgeye or any of its employees, officers, agents, or guests. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. This content is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. Hedge is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual expressing those opinions and conclusions and are intended solely for the use of Hedge subscribers and the authorized recipients of the contents. All investments entail a certain degree of risk, and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors, including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information contained herein is protected by United States and foreign copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient. Access must be provided directly by Hedge Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited. For more detail, please refer to the terms of service at hedgeye.com slash terms of service.